Welcome to Everyday Therapist. I'm Rich from the UK. And I'm Cody from the United States. Before we jump in, we just want to say that this podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice. Well, welcome to our fourth episode of Everyday Therapist. Uh, Rich, how's your week been? I'm hoping that you can hear me for a start before I answer that question. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Yeah, we're straight. Yeah, my work, my week's been good. We're straight into a few technical difficulties here, which is uh, interesting. So we've got a bit of feedback going on. Hopefully, you can't hear it. Um, yeah, week's been good. There's a bit of tension this afternoon because it's it's football chat again, soccer chat. Cody, we've got um, Man United and Man City are playing next door in my living room. My son's watching. Uh, so, so if we hear loud screams, then we'll we'll yeah, have to yeah, decipher yeah. that. Yeah, so we're going to have uh, possibly some screaming and, and the Man United are 1-0 down currently. So anyway, end of football chat. All All's good here. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also doing well. Um, like you said, we had a little bit of technical difficulties, but I would say that the start of this podcast has been much smoother than our last episode. So I'll take it. That's, uh, that's really? always a win. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about yeah. all that trouble. Did you get your car sorted? Yeah, um, yeah. My car got fixed. It's back home. Um, you know, it's amazing. Both my wife and I work from home, and and generally we're we're home most of the time. But even being down one car, even though we are home, it still is just a massive pain. And uh, and so it's it's nice to have have the car back. So uh, my wallet is a little lighter, but I have two cars <laughs> uh, in the in the garage. So that's 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 good enough, I guess. It's all good. So yeah, before uh, before we kind of jump into any any details, I just want to uh, let everybody know this is um, this is a little bit of a different episode, a, a special episode. Um, I think I'm I'm excited because we we teased this a little bit last week, but we have a guest host on today, uh, one of my uh, good and and dear long friends, uh, Sarah. Uh, Sarah, how are you? I am good. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, guys. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad that you could join us. And and just so everybody uh, knows a little bit, Sarah and I have known each other for. Gosh, I don't know, Sarah. Um, I probably should have prepped that before before like I met her. Seven, seven, eight years. I think it's like nine. Nine years now. Yeah. So Sarah and I, I worked together uh, for for quite a while, and um, we've uh, we no longer work together directly but uh we definitely still stay in touch so we've known each other and and uh, we've kind of gone through a, a lot of good journeys together so um in fact uh if you listen to our last episode where i um talked about going to therapy and having a really hard time leaving my team uh and had to go figure all that out um sarah was uh on that team and she was she was a part of that that made that so difficult for me. So um, I, I blame some of my therapeutic problems on Sarah. <laughs> but, but here we are. I want to hear about this. <laughs> so, um, Sarah, are you, uh, are you okay if we just kind of jump in? I, I'm really excited for you to just kind of tell, um, tell your career path. I, one thing that Rich and I always want to do on here is um, just talk about life in general and um, I, I know you're you're doing therapy now, but as as we kind of lead into what that's what that's like, are you are you comfortable just kind of telling us how you've come to be a therapist and what that's looked like for you? Yeah, sure. So I think, like most people that end up in therapy as a therapist, um, I just kind of landed here. It wasn't like my goal, right? So I. I was working at a group home for boys with behavioral and intellectual disabilities, and I loved it. Um, but my ultimate goal was always law school. So I had gotten into law school, I was getting ready to go, got into a pretty nasty car accident and had to stay. And so at that point, I got into child welfare. Um, I worked in child welfare for a really long time. And then one day out of nowhere, I got bullied by Cody into going back to school and getting my master's degree. So I went back to school, earned my master's degree, did my internship, and now I'm kind of in between 
two licenses. So I have my clinical social work license and I'm working on getting my, my L, um, which I should have by like next June. I've got all my supervision hours. It's more so just some of those clinical hours since over the last two years, life has kind of changed for me and, and doing therapy took a backseat. So. So Sarah, just uh, can I just jump in and ask for for the UK audience what what is do, did you say doing your L? Yeah, what does that so mean? Cody has his LCSW, um, and here I think specifically in the state that Cody and I live in, it seems like all of the different states have kind of different licensing rules for you to become a therapist. Um, so in between kind of school and what Cody is is what my degree is. So I've done the schooling, I've earned my degree, but in order to be fully licensed and on my own, not have someone like supervising my hours, um, I have to do so many supervision hours, so many clinical hours, and then take another exam. So I'm kind of right in that process. And how long, so roughly how much longer you to go? I should be done with that process by like next June. Yeah, yeah, and you're feeling good about it. You, you still, because I, I know for me, obviously, I'm a student at the moment, and I go through periods of being excited about the journey and and you know really engaged in it. So on a total high about it. This is what I'm going to do. Head going off in all directions, and then other days I'm just like, I don't think I want to do this. It's too much responsibility. You know, it just, why am I doing it? What are my actual motivations for doing it? Have you experienced any of that? I did when I was in jobs that I was not fulfilled at. So I am working with client populations that I enjoy working with or are challenging to me, then I am all about it. But if I am working with populations that maybe aren't my forte, um, I absolutely question, like, why am I doing this? What what got me here? Okay. Okay. That's really interesting, actually, because that, that's the thing. It's such it's such a big field, isn't it? And you can go off in, in any direction. And I think for me, when I'm, when I'm thinking about certain people, potential clients that I might have in the future, it just feels all too scary. Um, and then I think about some less scary clients. I'm sorry if they're not the right professional terms. <laughs> and I think, oh, I reckon I could handle talking to that sort of person and I reckon I could be useful to this sort of person. Um, but as soon as it's something outside that sphere, I get a little bit scared. Um, although I am quite interested in in looking into working with prisoners, which a lot of people on my course think that's a bit nuts and yeah why would you want to help yeah people that are perpetrators of crime and i'm like well who else is going to help them so yeah so it's interesting and the people i know we met briefly the other day and you said that you'd worked with some interesting characters up till now yeah so i during my internship which i also was at the same place that cody was um because he thought he could get away from me by quitting and it just kept popping back up um Sarah, Sarah and I have, uh, well, maybe I should say Sarah has followed me around to multiple positions, both in therapy world and um, uh, state job world. And it's it's been fun. It's been awesome, actually. And for, and for whatever reason, uh, I keep sending Sarah new job openings for where I'm currently at. So maybe it's maybe it's. I'm telling you, if you had just come to me and told me that you were struggling with quitting, I could have told you at that point, I will follow you around for the next 10 years like we could have solved a lot of <laughs> right <laughs> um but yes rich i i went to this internship with cody at this place that cody was working and i started working with some of our um lower level substance abuse um, clients and then i started doing our domestic violence groups for all of the perpetrators um so there was um, groups and classes and individuals that we did with these these clients. And then I also worked with our sex offender population. Um, and that probably has been my favorite population to work with. 
Yeah, that's that's surprising. And um, are you able to share with us why that is? Do you know why that is? I don't. Um, I think it's kind of one of those. It's just fascinating to figure out how people got to where they are. Um, but something that really kind of stuck with me, um, I'm not working with those men anymore, but, but something that really stuck with me in meeting with them all individually and through groups is yes, they made a horrible choice. They have done some horrible things, but I got to know them, right? And a common thing amongst all of them was sexual abuse or exposure at a very, very young age, a pornography addiction that got out of hand. Um, And you could just see it progressively escalate. And I think that kind of took me back to child welfare and all of the young victims that I had seen and had worked with um, and just kind of got me thinking of like, well, why do some go down this path and others don't? And, you know, I wonder if a lot of my sex offender clients, when they were perpetrated on when they were little, if they had gotten the mental health help that they needed as victims, if that could have maybe stopped the cycle. Yeah, and that's... let me and let me jump in here, Rich. Um, just because Sarah and I have talked about some of our ex- our experience working together, um, even before Sarah became a therapist, she Sarah's probably one of the most compassionate people that I know and that I've been around. Um, she, like she said, we we worked in child welfare, and she was always I literally mean always. I'm not even exaggerating that in the slightest always the first person to volunteer for the hardest cases, the most difficult clients, the most complex situations. You would come um, across the, you know, these parents that were um, in a really, really tough situation and prison for years and years or just unimaginable charges. Um, just all sorts of really difficult things to work through to try and, and work reunification with their kids. And Sarah would always be the one to jump in and say, I'll take that case. In fact, her and I had many, many conversations where I told her, you are not allowed to take any more cases because, because <laughs> you have too many of these hard ones. Somebody else has to do one. So that, that maybe plays into, um, who Sarah is and and why she is able to work with difficult populations. Yeah, it's impressive. It's really impressive, and and most people couldn't do that. I don't think I'm somebody that could do that. Although maybe you build build up to these things over time. And I'd be interested to do you find with the really complex and upsetting cases, do they stay with you? Do you manage to? ring fence them and, and you know, uh, are you able to step away from it in a therapeutic setting absolutely which is probably crazy to people that are hearing this thinking i can never sit in a room with these people um but by the time i started working with the sex offender population i had already been in child welfare for like eight or nine years and i feel like that kind of takes the shock factor out right like i had heard all there was to hear I had seen all there was to see and so these men telling me their life story was not something that I had never dealt with before you know what I mean but I also worked with therapists that were going through their internship and they had never been exposed to kind of this underworld right and it was shocking for them it was upsetting for them and I remember during my internship having to have conversations with with these other students. I mean, we were all students at the time about like, you know, maybe this isn't the population for you to work with. I'm seeing even your personality change at work. Um, And so I definitely think that you need some exposure to or a lot of compassion around working with these populations and and offenders. And, you know, at one point I, I got a job offer at the prison here and I was going to go do that. And I think people are always like, don't do it. It'll change you. But you've already been exposed to it and you have the tools to deal with it i don't mm. think it's that bad yeah i know i, I, I um i don't know much about it but I've, I've been trying to read my way through um person-centered therapy the carl rogers book and he talks about 
having the, I don't know whether he uses the word courage, but let's just use the word courage, the courage to go to the depths with people. And, you know, and the, the discussion about empathy and if you were to really do it properly, you, you actually need to properly get into the mind of that person and, and sit there down in the depths with them. And it's something I've, I've thought a lot about. I'm the kind of person that if I do something, I want to try and do it properly. And I think about working with offenders and that kind of thing and think, you know, am I prepared to do it? And what would it do to me potentially? Which is why you have supervision, I guess. And or we, what we, we do in the UK anyway. And, I, and I, we were chatting, I was talking to Cody about this the other week, that I believe that once you're a fully qualified therapist and you've done all your bits and pieces, you no longer have to have supervision. Whereas in the UK, that is an on an ongoing process. So, so far during the, the, the discussions about UK versus US, I think that's where, um, well, I'm glad that, that we that we have that over here. We, we have to do it. So, Sarah, you um, you had mentioned how you're able to kind of work with these difficult populations, and 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 like you're saying, Rich, is you have to fully, fully step into their shoes and and be able to try to understand them as, as as people rather than um, as offenders, right? And you have to be able to look at them as as human beings too. Um, Sarah, I'm curious. And maybe I can share first so that I'm not just putting you on the spot. I, I'm curious for the ups and downs that you might experience, both both in, in w- when you and I were at child welfare and as a therapist. Um, so for me, f- for me, I if I have a, a really good session with somebody where I feel like we had a breakthrough or some things that went really well, like I I, I leave that session um, on a high and I feel like everything is is you know, great. And, and my drive home is a little bit brighter and you probably know, I, I'll send, I'll send you a text or, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I can't wait to talk to my wife about just so, some really great thing that I've had. And, and that's wonderful, but there's also times that it's just, um, really emotionally draining as well. And there are times that I will leave sessions, uh, completely exhausted or just, feeling lost, uh, feeling like I don't know what to do. Um, and I experienced the same thing in child welfare. So I don't know. Do you, do you have any, any thoughts on the ups and downs of, of trying to remember that people are people and being part of that journey with them? I think that's one of my like obnoxious qualities that I'm really good at. (laughs) Like so do the worst thing. And I would still say, well, yeah, that was like a really bad decision, but you also have experienced X, Y, and Z. And I can see how we got to this point. Like, I know it annoys people when they're around me and they say something and I'm like, yeah, but like people don't just use drugs, right? Like they're, they're self-medicating. They're doing like, it just, I know it annoys people. Um, but yes, I, I experienced that to a degree probably more so now than in child welfare um in child welfare i think it was just i was so busy and there was such a need that i was able to tune out highs and lows it really didn't affect me we would go to all of those trainings about like secondhand trauma and i'd be like this doesn't apply to me i'm fine um now as a therapist if i leave a session that went really well this client had a breakthrough or they implemented something or they were able to refrain from something. I feel so excited for them. Um, and also it's kind of validation to me that like, I am helpful because I think as a therapist, sometimes you wonder and something that I have hated with therapy is it's to practice, right? Like there's not a right or wrong. There's not a script. When you learn a new modality, it's not like you are an expert in it you have to practice on clients and i have always hated the idea of like practicing with people's lives um but when i have a really hard session i knew that was gonna happen when i have a really hard session um somebody that just isn't opening up or doesn't want to talk about it or is hesitant to make change um 
or is really struggling emotionally, be it suicidality or substance use or, you know, when I was working with sex offenders, some reoccurring thoughts, um, I get almost like a compassion fatigue. I will think about it and think about it and try to figure out what I can do to best help them. And I think that that is probably what makes a good therapist, right? We are always trying to learn and evolve and grow and help change people. Um, but I can genuinely feel what they are feeling. And so I do think I get some compassion fatigue. Hmm. I think um, it sounds something, I, another thing I worry about, because obviously I worry about everything, is that, and I'd be interested to know what you think about this or what you, what, what your experience is. Do you, do you ever get just irritated at a certain clients because I, I keep thinking that this is good this is going to happen to me there's, there's going to be certain people that i just want to go god's sake come on you know it's a terrible thing to say like pull yourself together pull yourself together man and i know you can't say that in therapy but that's i wonder whether that's gonna uh explode out of me at some point in a session so far it hasn't exploded out but yes <laughs> um i remember i remember one client specifically but it was like weeks and weeks and weeks of talking about the same thing and he it was just like it was passive resistance right like this client would bring this up and be like oh yeah but i didn't do x y and z like i was supposed to and it was just like okay well like you're creating this scenario for yourself right and i do think well i was so frustrated um but i actually think at one point cody and i had had a conversation about like some people get to a point in therapy where healing or change is scary and they don't want to lose that support. And so they kind of plateau. And so once I was able to reframe it, I could go into those sessions less annoyed. But for months, every time this client was on my calendar, I remember being like, okay, here we go. You know, like I know mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen. So. And, and do you mean that they that potentially they fear the sessions coming to an end, so they're just trying to draw it out and do the same thing? Yeah, I think so. Cody, do you remember that conversation? Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's why consultation is is always so so good, and having other people that we can kind of bounce ideas off of, and because again like we might know different ther- we might become experts in all the different therapeutic modalities and this approach and that approach but we are never experts in that person's life and and we we talked about that a little bit on our last session rich but some people yeah some people will self sabotage because they're afraid of therapy ending or some people um they know that if they just make these changes then their lives could potentially improve, but for them to let go of whatever coping skill they've done for 10, 15, 20 years um, feel, is scary and they've never done anything differently. And so um, it is, you have to, you have to learn to approach clients where they are. And when you find that you're approaching them where you think they should be, that's when it's, frustrating and exhausting because they're not to the level of, of where you think that they should be. Um, but there's also this other, uh, piece of therapy that's called the here and now. And I love the here and now, even though it scares the crap out of me most of the time, but whenever I do it, it feels very impactful. And so to your point, Rich is like, if I'm sitting with a client and I'm feeling really irritated or I'm feeling any type of emotion, if I am tuned in enough to my own experience in that room, then I can use that experience to help push therapy forward. So for instance, if I'm feeling irritated by something that they're not doing, then I can talk to them about how I'm worried that our sessions aren't beneficial for them. Um, or, you know, and I'll talk to them, like, Hey, I'm feeling, I'm feeling um, a little bit worried that our past discussions haven't really been beneficial or impactful in your life. What have you taken from them? What what things have you learned? And 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 um, help me understand why you keep coming back. And that can help push things forward in a completely different direction. So, 
if I can focus on my experience in that room and then maybe let them know I'm not feeling as connected to them as I would like to, or I'm worried that I've just been wasting their time and they're not getting out of it what, what they want to, um, yeah. that can really help push the conversation in a completely different direction. Yeah. There was something when at college last week, and we I think we discussed this on the podcast, and they were talking about this uh, beginning, middle, and, and end part of the, the, the cycle. And our, our tutes referred to the, the middle bit as the river of shit. So it's just like, you know, you start off good, you come up with some sort of strategy or, or, or you talk about what everybody wants to work on or what the client wants to work on. And then you have to do the work and you've got to wait through a load of shit, basically try and sort everything out. And she made the point that it was it was a really good idea to keep checking in with them every week and saying, you know, where you up to, um, how do you think it's going, where are we heading? And also the fact that what they initially came with, perhaps some of the problems that they initially came in with, they might no longer be the primary concern. So it's, you know, it can be constantly shifting around, which I, th I thought was really interesting. Yeah. A lot of times, um, the presenting issue will change, uh, as you, as you go through therapy. Um, and, and that's the that's something to keep an eye out for as well, right? Like just because one symptom has reduced doesn't mean that therapy should stop. They put possibly are just finding other coping skills in other areas for sure. Yeah. So, so Sarah, what's the, what's the plan then? Once you get your license, are you going to set up a private practice or go and work for somebody? That is the question, huh? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I am doing therapy part-time right now. I work with children. Um, and I I had always thought about and hoped to kind of do a private practice. It was something that Cody and I had even toyed around with. Um, there's a kind of a group of us that should be getting our full license around the same time. Um, but now I have a baby. <laughs> and... Um, you know, part-time, I, I see all of my clients telehealth right now to keep him safe. And so kind of branching out and doing private practice, I don't think realistically is, is what's in it for me right now. Um, I'm kind of toying with the idea of like school social work so that I can have the same hours as him when he's that age. Um, I, I mostly... What I want to work on as soon as I get my L is um, like a nonprofit it's floating around in my head. Do you need Cody to push you into it? <laughs> like he has done with everything else for the last ten years, probably. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been a successful plan so far. <laughs> um, Sarah, I, I love your idea of a nonprofit. Um, and are you are you comfortable sharing? Um. Where, where this nonprofit idea kind of is originating and, and what you've been experiencing um, and just just kind of talking about the path that you've been on over the past little over a year now. Yeah, sure. Um, so, Rich, we kind of met uh, for a brief couple of minutes like a week ago. Um, but to give you more detail, um, my son was diagnosed with cancer. Um, retinoblastoma specifically when he was a day shy of six months old. Um, and so over the last a little bit over a year, um, he's done chemo, he's done uh, weekly or or um, he had weekly like blood draws for a while. He does monthly surgeries now. Um, what we found out was that his cancer is genetic. So he is missing the long arm of one of his chromosomes. Um, that is specifically linked to this cancer, but also some, you know, potentially significant health issues, developmental delays, some of which we're already kind of seeing with him. Um, and so through that, uh, I have met a lot of other cancer moms, um, become a part of this group in my community that I didn't even think about, didn't know existed. And wished I wasn't a part of, you know? Um, and so I've met all of these women and through this, um, 
through this entire process with my son, it wasn't until probably three or four months in that the hospital social worker that was assigned to my son and I actually made contact with us. Um, and it was because I had reached out because I needed paperwork completed for um, some FMLA because I was constantly taking leave to to get him to his appointments. So I just asked in a social media forum with all of these other cancer moms, what has your experience been with social work? And it was absolutely heartbreaking. Um, it was story after story of my child got sent home on hospice and the social worker didn't even reach out. My child passed and the social worker didn't reach out. Uh, my child was in treatment 10 years ago when he or she was two and is now having some significant health issues or behavioral issues or or some trauma from this medical trauma when they were younger and nobody is around to help um and that just to me is not okay and showed a huge gap um and i mean pediatric cancer is unfortunately not as rare as you would think and so that's a huge gap mm -hmm. of people that are needing services and can't get access to them or also, you know, our health insurance in, in the States is uh, less than ideal. And so when you have these kids that are going through cancer treatments and. Oh, he's just muted, Sarah. Oh, there you go. Uh, when you're going through cancer treatment and those bills rack up. Therapy is also a luxury that a lot of these families can't afford. They can't afford the $150, 200 copay every week to go to therapy. Now, something that, that actually it came back into my head. You said that the other day. Um, therapy is a luxury that, that people can't afford. And that kind of hit me because... You know, it's obviously extremely difficult. Can I, I've got a couple of questions for you, but can I just ask, how, how old is your son currently? He is 19, almost 20 months. Okay, good age. And how's he doing right now? Um, from a cancer perspective, well, um, you know, he's out of chemo. He, because it's genetic, is likely to get reoccurrence at least until the age of five. So some months he has no cancer and the next month he has little spots and I've just come to accept that and really trust in his doctors that they know what they are doing. Um, crazy as this sounds, now dealing with the cancer is the easy part for me. Um, it's his genetic issues and developmental delays that keep me up at night. <laughs> Am I doing enough? Do I have him in enough resources? You know, what does his future hold? And I guess no parent really knows that when they have a kid around. But it's almost like I know too much about him, right? You and I are probably walking around with some genetic issues that we don't know about. And because we don't know about them, we don't focus on them. Um, but I tell you what, the second I found out, that's all I can think about is like, how can I best help him? I just want to make sure that he has the happiest life possible. Um, yeah. So I think as well, that's, I mean, it's a it's a generalization this but i think that's a a mother's instinct as well and i'll just quickly share with you so so my daughter and i'll be a little bit careful about what i share here but she um put, well and she had some tests for something called marfan syndrome which is a genetic disorder i'm not sure whether you've heard of it it's it's, a, it's quite rare actually um you will hear of it now i've mentioned it and and when we got the news that this was uh, something she was being tested for, it was, to me, it was catastrophic. It was totally catastrophic. Grief is the, the quickest way I can describe how I felt about it. And we've, we've been really fortunate, actually. And she went through some genetic testing. And after, I think we had to wait something like, I've actually blocked a lot of it out, but I, th I think we probably waited between three and six months um, and then we went on a Zoom call, much much like this, and and we spoke to a geneticist, and she said, um, "Good news, um, she hasn't got Marfan syndrome, but she's got something called trisomy X, which is she's got an extra X chromosome, 
and she talked to us about it in an extremely uh, fair enough. She's a, a, a geneticist, so she told us the science, and then went, "But she'll probably be okay." And off she went. So then there was another period of uh, um, sort of disbelief, and you know, why has this happened, and guilt, and all manner of, of stuff. And my, I don't know whether this is a typical guy sort of reaction, but my, my reaction was to just bury my head in the sand and just try and forget about it. My wife's reaction, which was brilliant, she joined forums on Facebook and found out as much as possible as she could about it. And then she's been kind of educating me. But there's only so much, and we're in a really fortunate position, and, and my daughter, she, she's okay. But I kind of got drip-fed stuff you know and and still am being in, in in some ways so what's happened to you sounds i mean you had no social work support for did you say six months uh it was about three to four before i had heard from them um and really just that was to fill out paperwork right but like hearing you talk about your daughter is the exact reason why we need social workers therapists that are dealing with these things because there is no good way, right, to say to somebody, hey, we're worried about this genetic thing or, hey, it's cancer. And to not have somebody helping you through that process that is trained, like, even though I am a social worker, I am not a social worker in pediatric cancer. I'm not a social worker in in dealing with genetic things, right? So I could have used somebody. And I think every family kind of processes it differently. Like, it's even... I love my parents. I love my sister, but we have different views on things, right? Like we'll go, I'll tell them what I heard at a doctor's appointment and they lean toward the positive ends of things. And I'm like, yes, that is wonderful, but this over here still needs to be dealt with. Um, and so we actually kind of annoy each other because they're so positive and I'm more, they call me the Debbie Downer. Um, I feel like it's more realism. Um, but just somebody to help you navigate that. I mean, I remember specifically talking about, you know, geneticists waiting for months to figure out what caused my son's cancer. And she called me on a Friday afternoon at like 4.45 and said, this is what the results said. He might have epilepsy. He might have autism. He may never walk. He may never talk. Don't have many expectations for him. He'll show us what he can do. Have a good weekend. That I mean, almost verbatim, the conversation that we had. And it was like the world was crumbling around me again because I had the exit thing and now I yeah. have another hit. And man, it just would have been nice to have somebody outside of my family, right? Because they don't like to see me hurt, right? That's their instinct to protect me. Um, but them being positive frustrated me and annoyed me. So just having somebody to talk to yeah. that wasn't going to try to make me feel happy or try to make me look at the positives and rather just sit with me and like, this shit sucks. Mm -hmm. This is the problem with having a family that aren't therapists <laughs> because they try and make you feel better about everything. So, you know, it's a natural reaction, isn't it? Oh, it probably won't be that bad and, you know, look on the bright side and, and all this kind of thing. And we probably experience some of that to a certain extent. But I know it's a really simplistic way of looking at it, but it, it seems to me like when you were delivered that extra layer of news about genetics, it's almost like you needed to be held emotionally. And that's like so important because you've got to be together as much as you can uh you know be there for your son sir i'm i'm curious with with what rich is saying right now i'm curious how much you bounce back and forth between your professional experience of going through therapy and knowing how to validate things and knowing how to sit with your own emotions and and letting stuff be and also what you experienced you know, in earlier careers and social work and stuff, how much you bounce back and forth between like, I, I can do this because I have so much experience. And also this is all brand new because I'm a mom and I'm a human. And 
and just bouncing back and forth between those two worlds? I probably, I mean, people around me probably noticed me do it more than I do because it's just, for me, it's just reality. And I, I, I think I've probably said this to you, Cody, there are probably four out of the seven days of the week where I don't feel like I am his mom. I feel like him, I'm his social worker. I am coordinating all of his therapy appointments. I'm, I'm doing these care plans. I'm implementing the interventions. I mean, even when we go to the hospital and I know that that trauma is with him, like we have little routines to prepare. And I mean, I think I'm constantly in therapy slash social work mode because that's how I can feel like I'm helping, right? If it got away from me, I'm a helpless mom. Mm -hmm. I am, I can't fix what he's going through. I can't make it better. It sucks. But if I go into social work mode, I'm helping. I'm doing something. I'm making sure his needs are met. And I feel better about the situation. Um, but it's the days where, I mean, that that also yeah. holds it against me, right? Because I put that pressure on myself. And so there are days where I'm like, okay, well, we didn't do enough therapy today. And because of that, he's probably never going to do X, Y, or Z. Like, so I vacillate between like treating him like he's a client so that I can get him what he needs. And then when I take a minute to return to mom mode, nothing I do ever feels like it's enough. Right. So it's more comfortable for me to stay in, mm-hmm. in social work mode. This is the, this is the trouble. And, um, uh, They'll always have to mention the fact that counsellors don't give advice. I, I mention it on every episode, but I'm just desperate to, well, not not to give you advice, but it's just like you've got. It's like you you're almost placing too much responsibility on yourself. I mean, I know you're his mum. I know you're his mum. You know who else is going to do it? But Jesus, it's like to take that on. I sent Cody a picture the other day. My mom, so. A couple of Christmases ago, Cody was my secret Santa and I unwrapped this gift and he got me and the first thing that I saw on it, it was, maybe you should talk to somebody. And I looked at it and I was like, are you like, what? Um, And it ended up being like one of my favorite books, but I remember opening it and being like, is he telling me I need to go to therapy? And then my mom, just yesterday, I went to drop my son off to her. She watches him while I work. And she hands me a bag and she goes, there's a little present inside. And I'm like, what? And she goes, I just got you a little something. You'll understand, but like, you need it. And I'm like, okay. And it was called a book. It was a book called um, Let Go of Your Guilt. Right. <laughs> it's like, are you are you telling me something? And she goes, yeah, yeah I am. It's, it's, it's basically impossible to do it, isn't it? And I know that like I've got three children. And, and again, this honestly isn't advice, but I, I know the weight of responsibility is, is, is a good, it's a good thing, but it's, it's massive. And as they get older and, and Cody might have experienced some of this cause his, his kids are a little bit older now, you get to a, a point with certain things where you go, I can't, I can't take that on. That's, that's your thing now. Um, because it would do you, but it's very different for you. You know, obviously you're in a completely different situation. And so in terms of on your day to day, it sounds like you're doing sort of therapy, social work, looking after your child and this idea of a nonprofit as well. You just thought you'd give yourself some extra work. Did you? I thought, why not just make myself go absolutely insane, um, and add more to my plate. Yeah. But I just, I, I, if I see an injustice or if I see a service gap, it will irritate me until I address it. Um, and it, it always has been that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to learn more about that, Sarah, but before, before I jump fully into that, that nonprofit idea, um, it sounds like you and Rich had very similar circumstances in terms of here's this absolutely earth shaking news um, that you're getting as a parent and yet both of you describe scenarios where you just felt like there's 
a lack of support or even if there is support it's very technical and professional and cold and here's here's the cold hard facts and there's no there's no emotional holding of, of anything it's just like this is what it is and and now and now go on on your own so i'm curious and maybe this is where it leads to your your idea of a nonprofit. but like what do you what do you envision or, or like what would you want parents to be able to have in that moment like what what would be helpful in such a such a hard time that that people not everybody understands what what would, what would that look like so i think back to when my son was diagnosed with cancer specifically um we sat in this room the doctor kind of hinted at it and then left and then the technician came in to give me information for for an mri for him and i didn't it hadn't sunk into me that that they just said he had cancer um, because the doctor was kind of vague about it and then left the room. And so I asked, will he ever see again? And the technician, who is not trained in having to deal with me at all, said, well, that's the least of your worries. And I said, so are we assuming that this is cancer? She said, it is. And then every cell in my body just tightened and all i could think was will he live and i started crying and she looked at me and she said oh don't cry you're gonna make me cry what a different experience would it have been if while delivering me this news knowing that doctors have to be technical they don't get into the emotions they shield themselves like you and i probably did in child welfare Cody knowing that that is kind of how they handle it. If you know that you're about to give that news to a parent, pull in a social worker. They're assigned from the second your child gets diagnosed with cancer. Um, pull them in. Because it. I went into shock, right? And it's different to read about shock and hear about it and treat it in other people. It is another thing when you are in it. And I... I genuinely could not think straight. I could not see straight. I do not remember the drive home. Um, and there are pieces of the next two weeks that for me, I don't remember, right? Because I just shut down. And I, I think if I had had somebody, aside from family who is also in shock, is also feeling these same things, but trying so hard to comfort me, if I had had somebody for lack of better words, hold my hand, walk me through it. I might have been able to process it a little bit better because um, I did not handle it well at all. And um, and I also didn't, even though I'm a social worker, didn't know of a lot of the resources that were out there and available. And the only reason that I found out about those was from talking to other cancer moms. What is the point of having a, a social work team if they're not providing you with that? Right. And, and there are constantly right. on these Facebook groups, people that are needing help. You know, I have to come in from out of state for my child's treatment. Where can I stay? But I don't have resources or, um, you know, I was just told that my child is terminal. How do you guys cope with it? And they're looking to other untrained professionals. Right. Like we're we're trained in our in our own kind of mommy world, but they don't know how to really deal with that. And so they're getting a lot of maybe bad advice or unhelpful tips. And I just think if they had had somebody to walk them through it and also give them resources up front, maybe this traumatizing experience doesn't have to be so traumatizing or not so isolating. I mean, it's so isolating. Yeah. This is, this is a question to both of you, really. Um, why why is there such a lack of support do you think i wish i wish i had a great answer um rich i think i think it's maybe a couple things i think one is there's probably a small number of people that experience such traumatic events um compared to the majority of the population um 
and because of that, I think that there's probably a lack of focus um, legislatively um, as well as funding wise. Um, I think that there's probably a fair amount of hospital social workers who probably feel the same way that Sarah just described that we need to be, we need to do better and we need to be better. Um, I, I, I mean, I think there's probably individuals in that field that aren't, that, that could do better, but I think it's probably more of a system problem that they probably need extra resources and support to be able to provide that. And to get those extra resources and support, it would take um, funding and legislative focus, but that that's just an assumption. I don't know. That just seems like, that just seems like it's always the reason for any gaps that we come across here in the U.S. No, I think I that's know, spot on. I think once I'd met this social worker, um, I really like her. Um, and I think she would do all the things that she could, but she has high caseloads, right? And she's not able to meet with all of these people or, or maybe be the social worker that she wants to be. Um, and even though there's a lot of social workers, just even in our state, um, very few deal with, you know, hospital stuff or pediatric cancers or genetic things, whatever it might be. Um, and the funding is not great. I don't know how it is where you are, Rich, but like, in mental health is not a priority really all the time. It's not. I mean, the, the mental health in our country is, is just... I was, I was listening to a podcast the other day and there was, um, I can't remember what she was called, but she was a, a, a doctor of, uh, she was a doctor of psychology and she's, she's been in, in the industry for want of a better word for the last 30 years. And she said that in this country, in the UK, um, actually sort of 10, 20 years ago, we had a, a great system. You know, we had lots of stuff in place. It was well-funded. And it's just, they've just, yeah, I don't want to get political, but the, the funding has just been slashed year after year after year. It's not seen as a priority. Um, and then you sort of start to hear things like, you know, because they look at the cold, the cold calculations in the end, and she was sort of saying, you know, if they spent this amount of money on trying to help people, you would save this amount of money by, you know, all the potential problems that you would kind of, alleviate in the future i think with uh genetic problems and, and and the things that we experienced it's very um it's very rare so that there's no there's no real research into it um especially with, with this triple x syndrome thing a lot of people actually have it. It'd be might be something you want to have a look up and see how many people have it in the states. But a lot of women have it and they don't know they've got it, and, and there's there's no real problem. And it's almost like they've taken that and used that as a excuse for one of a better word to go. Well, you know, most people are okay, so we're not really going to research it. And you, yeah, you'll be fine. You'll probably be fine. But of course. You know, even if your child is is perfectly healthy as a parent, you're anxious anyway. So yeah, something comes, something like this comes along, and it just it actually just completely kicks you, doesn't it? And you don't know where to turn. So I don't. It doesn't sound like either country are doing a good job. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, and that's that's part of why that's part of why I wanted to invite Sarah on today is because her and I have talked about the, this gap um, of, of care for people. And even though it's not the majority of people, um, it's it's big and it's massive. And if we can reduce people being traumatized when they don't need to be, um, that's, that, that, that's extremely important. Yeah. And I really think that pushing these mental health conversations is, is part of that. So, yeah, I just want to jump in. I always think of this when I kind of, cause I feel like I'm criticizing, um, the, the sort of the, the landscape out there. And I'm sure there's many people doing everything they can, you know, people with massive caseloads, compassionate people that, I mean, cause the thing is, if you talk about, you know, um, childhood cancer or genetic conditions and everything these these are all you know you, most people 
therapist, they're not going to know about those conditions, are they? They're not going to have a deep understanding of any of it. And it might take years to learn about something like that. So I guess in some sense, there's only a limited amount of uh, support that you could give. But that's why I like the idea of this non-profit, Sarah, that you're talking about, because, I mean, you are a trained therapist. I'm sure that you'd have a lot of uh, good advice for people about how they could support each other. That's my hope. Um, but like I said, it's just in the very beginning stages. I've talked to my therapy supervisor and, and she was like, yeah, you can absolutely do like a therapeutic nonprofit. You just, um, you know, how hard would that be for you? And I'm like, in terms of what time or like, you know, hard, you know, um, but something that I think I've always been aware of and Cody can probably attest to this because anytime I was feeling like at work I would go into his office and be like do I care too much or too little right now like like I can't tell is this the appropriate amount of caring um and I I want to make sure that before I do this I am in a good headspace to help other people because the last thing I want is to trigger or be triggered by somebody um and until until my son is I don't even I don't even know what that looks like right if it's that he's out of treatment or that I know a little bit more or he hits some of these milestones and I kind of feel better um but until I'm in a good space I, I don't ever want to do that to somebody else that comes to me for help so hmm do you feel like you're, this is kind of slightly changing the subject, Sarah, but with your, what you've told me about your son's condition, are you feeling like an agonizing wait to see uh, what these milestones, you know, if he's going to achieve these milestones and what that's going to look like? Do you feel in a constant state of anxiety about that? Um, I kind of vacillate between two things. Um, so first off, there's a, there's a TED talk that I used to watch with clients and it's about the happiness advantage. Um, and it talks about specifically like in the, in the U S um, a lot of people, the large majority of people are unhappy and it's because we attach our happiness to something, right? So like, I'll be happy when I get this promotion. And then you get that promotion and okay, well, I'll be happy when I buy a new house. Um, and so you can never really reach happiness because it's always just right out of reach. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I do that with my son. Um, I don't think I do. I know I do. Um, and so I will vacillate between it doesn't even, and it genuinely doesn't, it does not matter it from an emotional loving perspective, whether he can or can't do something will not change how much I love him, right? But I also want him to have the best life possible and we're kind of in an ableist society. And so in my head and, and stereotypes, I think if I can just get him to walk, I'll be happy. Um, and then he's still not doing it. And so that I'm like, the weight of the world is on my shoulders. And then I remind myself, well, if he never walks, it's okay. He, there are wheelchairs, there are walkers, there are devices, like he'll be fine. Um, but I vacillate between like the weight of the world is on my shoulders and I am absolutely keeping happiness out of grasp um, between that and like, it's okay. It doesn't matter. And, and truly it doesn't, right? Like mm. if I knew today that he was never going to walk, it wouldn't change how I feel about him. So I don't know why I sit and stress on it, but I do. And I think that that's probably what most parents feel. Yeah, and, and that, the happiness thing, you know, it, it seems kind of silly in a way talking about it in, at the same time as talking about the stuff that's going on with your son. But I, I see this all the time and I do it myself. We're always trying to reach that next level. And you mentioned like, you know, I'll be okay when I live in that house and, and do this and do that. And what I've tried to do with myself over, well, forever, the last couple of decades, whatever, is that it could sound like a little bit of a miserable thing to say in some ways, but I've 
I almost try and meditate on the fact that whatever I achieve, I'm not going to be that happy. <laughs> it's kind of like, but it's good. It's not as bad as it sounds because it's like, yeah, I'm not going to be right up there. But the, the sort of payoff is also, I'm not going to be right down there either. So I'll, I'll take it. Like if I can be somewhere in the middle, I'll take it because I've had that rock bottom maybe I'll have it again and I've had that sort of ridiculous dopamine fueled pursuit of something that even as I'm pursuing it I know that it's not gonna satisfy me you know it's it's just completely crazy in some ways and I reckon uh, I think you can apply it to a lot of things yeah yeah and I think that that should be the goal right is this happy medium but we don't do that what about you uh, yeah, no, I, I have, um, since I've become a therapist, that's been a major focus of mine. I've tried to, um, I've tried to live more by my values than my achievements. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here is when we achieve something that's generally, um, what has, what has caused happiness. And I used to live my life like that, right? Like I used to go work for, for a place and I'd be like, I'm, 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 I'm on my way to the top. Like I want the number one position in this place. You know, I want to be director. I want to be, be whatever. And, and since I've become a therapist, um, I still have goals and ambitions. It's not like that has changed, but, um, it, it definitely has switched from achievement to living a life of, of value and, and current, current times. And so, um, which is kind of funny, actually, now that I'm mentioning it, and this is completely off topic, but, um, my current position, they keep having us trying to set these professional goals and like, I have to come up with like two or three professional goals. And they keep telling me like, what do you like, as you envision yourself, where do you want to go? And I'm, I'm up to this point where I'm like, I don't want to go anywhere. That's a good goal. I'm That's literally, right. <laughs> I know I'm, I want to be here. I'm, I'm here. I'm happy. I, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to achieve, but yet they keep telling me, keep thinking about it. Keep thinking about it. Keep tell me when you have something. I'm like, I, I don't want to come up with something, but how do you tell your, your supervisor that? So that's, that's so I'm on the opposite side at the moment, which is I'm okay with. <laughs> how do you help you get there? That sounds fantastic. Right. Right. I just want to be here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, living in the moment, there is something to be said for that, but it's very difficult to do that, of course, isn't it? Living in the moment. I try and do it all, the, all, all the time. Like, um, you know, this sort of general uh, self-care, you know, looking after yourself kind of thing. And uh, I went out for a, a ride this afternoon. It's a really nice day here. Or it was a really beautiful autumn day. Sun is shining. And I'm just like, try and stay in the moment, just to enjoy the moment. And then you just go off on some crazy train of thought and then but then i suppose that is meditation in a way isn't it trying to pull yourself back to um the present moment kind of thing but i'm i'm fairly useless at it i've got to say (laughs) (laughs) yeah well um we are we're about in an hour which uh which is is our time that we've kind of picked for this um but before we go um Sarah, I'm I'm curious if there is, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but is there any any advice or any thoughts or anything that you would just share with maybe a parent that's kind of going through the same things and and maybe not quite as adept to resources and and support groups and just all the things that you know from your social worker career? Is there anything that you would like to just share with somebody else who might be going through that as a parent? There's 10,000 things I'd like to share, but they're all like really specific. Um, I think the best thing is like, if there's anybody that is hearing this, that is going through something similar, don't wait for your social worker to reach out to you, right? Like in an ideal world, that person would be with you from the beginning, but that's not always possible, no matter how much they want it or you want it. And so like, don't be afraid to reach out. Speaking on like the social worker side of it, like I would love for clients to come to me and be like, I'm having this issue, please help me. Instead of sitting there and suffering and struggling and thinking how embarrassing I need to reach out to the hospital social worker for like a gas card or like whatever the resource is, they have access to it. And like that is what it's there for. Utilize it. 
Um, because I think we get in this kind of mindset of like, I'll share my problems, but not how I react, not what I'm dealing with internally. Like I, for some reason, we think that we have to keep that inside, right? And if you can just be honest with that social worker, there are resources to help you. Um, we might just not always have the time to talk to you about those resources um, unless you ask and they know that you're struggling. So reach out. Mm, that kind of feeds into what we've been talking about over the last few weeks as well, in a way, which is there's, there's that stigma about reaching for help and, you know, being in therapy and all that kind of thing. And it's just, if we could break that down a little bit and it just becomes something that people do especially i mean if you're having problems or you you're facing uh some you know devastating news it should be a no-brainer that you would uh think of going to get some help but it just just isn't the case i know that's cody's vision anyway which is just well i, I mean everyday therapist that's where you got the name from wasn't it yeah and i i think the more that we can plug that idea the better um mental health conversations are, are good they're important they need to become part of uh everyday life and uh we're all in this in this together so all right guys do you have anything else that you want to share before we wrap up i just want to say thanks Aaron, for coming on you're very brave to, to come on you're our first uh victim i love that thank you guys for having me and i was happy to be the guinea pig so that you can figure out if you're like oh gosh Sarah talk too much like maybe for the next guest we have to have specific questions now you know so I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, the, the, the news when Cody's pushed you into starting your non-profit and what the situation is I, you know watch this space I'm, I'm, I'm going to reach out to you Rich and be like he's done it again please help me he's bullying me in career <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds uh, good. Whatever. Rich is going to help us kick it off in the UK. Um, not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. We'll see. Awesome. Well, th thanks everybody. Appreciate you listening. Take care, guys. Bye.